Welcome to Inside the Growing Mind. This is the third episode of Westminster's podcast, all about giving parents and teachers tools to help our children grow healthy, resilient brains. Joining us for today's episode, we have learning strategist Kat Monroe from our upper school, as well as middle school counselor Sandria Zomalt. It's almost time for exams here at Westminster and at other schools. That can be a really stressful time for students, and while it's important to talk to our kids about their stress all year long, there are some extra things we can do at times like exams when that sense of stress might be heightened. Let's just start with a quick overview of what happens inside your brain when you're feeling a lot of stress. So I think the biggest thing that we're really trying to push is reframing how we think about stress. Um, so to kind of change your relationship with stress so that you take it as a positive versus a negative. Because we know when stress becomes a negative um, impact on our life, it's really affecting the amygdala. And when our amygdala gets worked up, it's going to prevent our prefrontal cortex from working along with our hippocampus, which is crucial for learning information and retrieving it during time situations. And I, I'd like to interject. I think it's very important to differentiate between stress and anxiety. We are calling this podcast tips for testing anxiety, mm-hmm. but not everyone has a diagnosis of clinical anxiety. Kids that have stress, normally it's situational. Um, stress is brought on by some type of threat, that threat being an exam, um, and that sends their body into a physiological response. After the test, those physiological responses in the body tend to dissipate. However, with anxiety, stress is the trigger, and anxiety is lasting, um, and it usually is pretty persistent and has a very negative um, consequence to daily functioning. How might you know if your child is in that group of children who may need an anxiety diagnosis versus just experiencing our regular biological reactions to stress? Right. I think that if you have a child who is ruminating constantly, um, who cannot seem to stop the thoughts that are going on in their head, they seem to be on a hamster wheel, per se, um, then I would consider um, getting a mental health professional to do some testing and find out what's going on. Also, if there's any interruption to sleep patterns, eating, you're seeing major changes in their behavior, um, I would consider... um, a psychological report. During test time specifically, why do our bodies go into that stress response? Can we walk through those three factors one by one? How do we help our kids with each of those? Lack of preparation obviously goes hand in hand with kind of study strategies. And what we've noticed is that when we ask students how they study, the, the typical response is that they reread their notes. Um, and obviously that is, is one way, it's, it's a good priming way to start studying, but it is not the only way to study. We really want something more active, um, more something that requires more what we call encoding. So to get information from the prefrontal cortex to the uh, hippocampus where our learn, long-term memory is stored. So a couple strategies are um, where you make associations between two items that you wouldn't think go together and you try to make those work. So if you say like um, a bowl of soup and a pen, you try to find a way how they can be related. And so that's what they should be doing when they're studying. Um, But also really requiring um, what we call more of like a free response. So for them to write down the information without it being in front of them. So making kind of a cheat sheet with no information in front of them. And then they can really see what they know and do not know when they look at the page. We've got a couple weeks between now and exams here at Westminster. 
what are some things that parents can sit down with their children and do now to help them plan out their study strategies? Okay, so there's two pieces to that, I think. It's um, it's the planning piece and it's the study strategy piece. So um, as I kind of just talked about really trying to get information um, to the hippocampus, I think a really concrete example that's being used, I know both in the middle school and upper school, is something called um, study the penny. And so it's telling the child, um, asking them, do you know what a penny looks like? And they will usually say, yeah, of course I know what a penny looks like. And then you say, draw the penny. And they cannot draw the penny. So that's how they study. They think they know information, they've looked at it, but when it actually comes to applying it and using it, they can't. So just giving them that concrete example when they're studying, think about draw the penny. So you want to study information so that you can put it down on paper without having the visual in front of you. That would be more of the the study strategy. The time management is just really being very deliberate about where the hours are being spent. But I think the key is that really partnering with your child and being deliberate about the time studying um, is, is critical for the developing brain. Talk a little bit more about encoding. What does that mean? And how do we know if our kids are doing that when they're studying? Sure. So encoding is a fancy word for learn deeply. So it is the process of getting the information from the prefrontal cortex um, to the hippocampus. So we kind of follow what's easy for at least the upper school students. We talk a lot about what a memory model, and it goes from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex to the hippocampus. So if a student is stressed, we've talked about the amygdala is going to be worked up, it's not going to be happy, and that's going to impact whether the information can be learned deeply, so encoded into the hippocampus, but it also will impact whether they can retrieve it on test day. So um, the important thing to continue to think about is how are we keeping that amygdala calm and receptive? So if the three parts of that model are learning the information, retaining the information, and then retrieving that information, is studying for exams mostly about helping with that retrieval piece? Yes, I think studying is part of it. But I think when it comes to the actual taking the exam, the retrieval is relying heavily on this this state of the amygdala. Again, if it is worked up, it stops all, it really hampers all information. It shuts down the prefrontal cortex, so we were not accessing anything from the hippocampus. So then the amygdala affects your learning when information is on the way in and when it's on the way out. Right. So we've seen it, and that's why we use it even for classroom instruction. If kids are feeling stressed um, uh, or anxious, not anxiety, but they are stressed or anxious during um, the instruction, if there's something going on, they'll also have a hard time um, learning the information. I think another thing a lot of kids really struggle with during exams is their fear of failure. Yeah, I think that we are really working hard with our students to focus on having a growth mindset. And we know that that's very hard when our students have perfectionistic tendencies Mm -hmm. going to a very competitive school like Westminster. But it's important that we partner with parents, teachers, counselors, and all student support so that kids are really learning that it's not about the grade. It's about the preparation that is going to help you succeed in the future. I agree, and we are continuing to kind of reframe that thinking a lot in the upper school where it seems that grades to them have a higher um, emphasis or are possibly more important because now they're on you know a transcript and even thinking about it's a process it's a journey even if you are grade hunt grades are impactful to you they are not going to get better if you don't learn through that process, if you don't take those setbacks and learn through them and learn from them. And so we, we kind of just talk more about it. it's a journey that we're traveling, we're going through, 
um, mm-hmm. during those times. Absolutely. And Kat talked about the cognitive reframing. So I'll talk a little bit more about that. A lot of times when students struggle with um, having anxiousness around testing and they're putting all that pressure on them, a lot of times if they don't do well on a test, then they go into this pattern of negative self-talk. And one of the things we really want them to focus on is learning how to reframe those thoughts. Um, And again, we're talking about neuroplasticity um, and the way that we deepen those neural connections and change the shape of the brain, which they can do, um, is by forming different patterns. So one way that they can shift their cognitive distortions are by doing just a thought record. So at the end of the day, for five minutes, they could go home and just jot down, how did I feel on that test? What made it anxious? And go through step by step, what was I telling myself at the time? And the sooner they do it, the better, because that information is fresh. Then they can reframe those statements. So for example, if a student said, I suck at math, they can reframe that and say, math may not be my favorite subject, but I'm doing my best and I'm getting better every time. Right, and I think even to expand on that is students thinking about the stress response that, you know, heart rate's going up, the, um, you know, the response they have is being a helpful and positive thing and thinking of it, this is my body's response because it's ready, because I care about that and it's getting ready to do well. Um, versus thinking, I'm stressed out, that means I'm not prepared, you know, go, you know I'm not going to do well. Yeah, so instead of letting the stress be a mechanism for them to shut down, they use the stress for its energy that it gives them. And that can help definitely transform mm-hmm. their test-taking mm-hmm. experience. And I will say, just to add on, if there's been a lot of research, especially out of Stanford, that proves this, the reframing of your um, mindset around stress has a physiological and biological response. And so Dr. Crum out of Stanford has done a lot of research on it, and it's amazing. Listeners, we will link to some of that research on our website at westminster.net slash podcast. I remember Kat and Sandria when we were at Forum this fall and Keith Evans was talking to all of the faculty and staff about the power of taking that energy and saying, I am excited, rather than saying, I am nervous or I am stressed. And it sounds like from what you're saying, it really is about not getting rid of your stress, but using it to your advantage. Exactly. We will never, ever be able to get rid of stress. Right. <laughs> not just at Westminster, <laughs> but for life. <laughs> but by teaching kids the skills to manage the stress, we are teaching them to be learners for life. And that's our goal. A teenager is not always going to come home and say, Mom, Dad, I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling like I'm going to fail. Are there any signs that parents can look for if their kids aren't being open about their stress level? Are there signs parents can look for that might signal that their child's stress is getting to an unhealthy level? Yeah, definitely. We want to start with the sleep patterns. We know how important sleep is and that a lot of our kids aren't getting enough of it. Um, Doctors would recommend for teens still eight to nine hours of sleep, and a lot of our kids are getting like 
four to five, which is a scary statistic. But again, we want to make sure that they're getting the rest that they need so that, you know, their brain is functioning at a high capacity. We also want to look at changes in diet and make sure that they're having a healthy, balanced diet. And if you're seeing that change, normally the physiological response can present itself in the um, digestional tract. So a lot of times kids that struggle with anxiousness or stress tend to feel like they don't want to eat as much or they overeat. So look at some of those um, dichotomies. Yeah, and I'll just add, because Sandria brought up sleep and diet, it's critical, especially as we approach exam time where kids want to sacrifice those two things because they want to study more and more. And there's actually a negative impact that that has. So we really want to stress the importance of during exam to get that adequate sleep, the eight to nine hours, your brain actually um, consolidates memories during that time. So it helps the learning tremendously, whatever you learned um, during the sleep cycle. And then also the, the diet is important. So what about when we get down to a day or two before the exams? There's not much time left. So at some point, the studying that you've done is the studying that's going to be done. What can we do at that point to help our children keep their brains healthy and available for doing the best job they can do on those exams? So you made a good point about you have done all the studying you can do, and a lot of our students feel like, if I just cram in that last bit of information, then that will help me. But we know that that is not the case. What we really want to see them doing is having an intentional plan for their downtime so that they aren't spinning, so that they aren't studying to the last minute. Ideally, they would be doing some form of exercise. They would be doing something fun, some type of healthy distraction so that they aren't getting into any of those ruminating patterns. I think exercise is a really interesting point. How does that work as a distraction mechanism and how might that help our children's brains? Exercise is one of those tools that is so vital in order to, you know, retrieve information in order for our memories to kick in the way that we want. Exercise is also one of the best benefits for reducing our stress. It just improves our heart rate. It gives us those happy chemicals, kicks in those endorphins, and makes us feel that when the stress kicks in, it's not as severe as we may think without having something to balance it. Exercise helps with um, sustained attention, so it helps kids focus for longer. So if they feel like they are getting um, their challenge of sitting still, they're getting tired of being in one location, getting out and doing some exercise is a great break, and it actually allows you to come back and focus better. So what kind of studying should our kids be doing on that very last day? Should they be doing any studying? It is a very individualized approach at this point, but we would not recommend, of course, massive amount of studying. That should have been done way prior to that day. This would just be kind of whatever, you know, your calming mechanism, you know, just kind of easy review, getting your head in the right space. But we, we would not recommend a high level of studying the day before. I agree with that. Definitely do some summarizing, a quick review, but nothing intense. And definitely don't try to learn new information the day before the test. To hear from our students today, we went to the upper school to talk about tests, what they're doing to calm their nerves, and the best advice they've ever received when it comes to preparing for exams. I kind of just try to tell myself that like I've studied and just look over all the problems and make sure that before I jump into a problem, I've read the whole thing and I understand what I should do because that way I can just slow down and take my time. Well, I always uh, go to bed at a good hour, and so if I'm well-rested, then I'm always less stressed and ready to take the test. 
I normally just remind myself that I've studied and that I know the material and it calms me down just knowing that I studied and know the stuff. I'd say the best advice is to start studying early and do a little bit every day so that you like, retain the information better. I tell myself I know what I'm doing, I've studied, I've prepared. While studying for a test that I'm nervous about, I usually put on music that is soothing, is usually slower. When I need to focus, I usually put on white noise so that I can stay focused. Thinking about that car ride in the day of the exam, sometimes that can be a little tense. There's a stressed out mood there. For those of us who are still driving our kids into school, our kids aren't old enough to drive yet, are there any recommendations for how to use those last 15, 20 minutes with our kids before the exam? I absolutely would caution parents against focusing on the grades. We cannot say that enough. Please mm -hmm. do not focus on the grade. No. <laughs> if anything, I would just, you know, encourage your child, say, hey, I acknowledge today that this may be tough. You've got this test coming up. You know, maybe you weren't feeling as prepared or maybe you did. But just giving them a lot of encouragement and letting them know that you support them no matter what. A lot of our kids are so stressed out and a lot of it comes from parental expectations. And if you can assure your child that you love them no matter what and it's not about the grade, you will give them such a great start to the day. You wanna model calm. So you want to kind of, even in your delivery, your nonverbals, everything, you want to model a very calm behavior because um, the tendency for the most students is going to be uh, to be anxious. But then that, that positive energy, whether that's a motivational speech, maybe that's an I love you, whatever is, you know, feels obviously natural in the moment, but giving them some positive uh, energy going out, out of the car is going to be key. For parents who may want to share with their kids some tips that they can use during the exam, what would you recommend? Yeah, so some test-taking strategies. The big one I think um, Sandra and I talked earlier both agree on is something called the brain dump. So really, once you get your test, um, to turn it over and to just write out kind of everything that's on your mind, obviously <laughs> that relates to the content, um, and you know, getting that out and then then flipping your test over and kind of surveying it, kind of looking to see. You don't always have to start on question one. That's not you know that that's not a must. Kind of looking at the big picture of the test and then you know, diving into where it feels comfortable. I think we also want to focus on, and Kat referenced this earlier, calming the amygdala. If our amygdala is fired, then we're not going to be able to restore the information that we need to do to be successful. We can calm the amygdala through breathing exercises, through deep nose breaths. We can also self-regulate our physical symptoms through concentrated breathing. So that looks like in through your nose for two, out through your mouth for two, in through your nose for three, out through your mouth for three, up until five. And I always tell students if they've ever seen the movie The Hulk, there's a scene where the main character actually learns to calm his own heart rate down so that he doesn't transition into the Hulk. So I use that analogy a lot with students and I say, remember, you can control your breathing and by that you can calm your amygdala. Another thing that teachers can do and students can do for themselves is offer cognitive distractions. We often feel like a cognitive distraction is a restroom or a water break, but we want to be very clear because moving to the bathroom can mean that I'm ruminating even more over that one problem that I didn't recognize. And so then I spin into, I'm not going to do well on this test. I didn't know the first two or three problems. What we really want to do is just 
distract the brain. And again, this helps to regulate the amygdala. Um, and some ideas for that are take a second to work on a few pieces of Sudoku. Um, try to remember the birthdays of all your immediate family members or maybe recall a monologue from your favorite movie. It can really help to distract you from the task at hand. Your amygdala is calm and you can get back to work. We referenced, of course, the amygdala a lot during this podcast. And just to really stress the importance of calming the amygdala on test day, um, because you can do all the preparation in the world. You can study. You can know the information inside and out. But if you cannot find strategies to calm down your amygdala on test day, you will not be able to retrieve that information from your hippocampus. And so I think that, in my mind at least, in the upper school, is the single most important factor um, when we're approaching exams is finding that strategy that will allow you to remain calm, to, to embrace the stress, um, to love the stress, but then to keep it under control when you're taking the test. What do you guys do personally when you're faced with a stressful situation like public speaking or a big deadline? I, the, my two is I rely heavily on breathing. Um, I have noticed over time that I will literally like almost stop breathing or have really short breaths when I get um, stressed. And then for me, this is something I learned through sports, but positive self-talk, like psyching myself up that I'm usually better than I am <laughs> is helpful going over the top um, will get me in the right frame because I actually, in my job, do a lot of public speaking. And I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of it, but with a couple strategies. Yeah, and I would say that we're not too much different than our students. The adults working walking around Westminster are adult versions of our kids. So we are also very A-type, we are perfectionistic, <laughs> and we want everything to go in a certain order. So one of the biggest strategies, and we've mentioned it here, is really reframing how we think about our stress. That has been so huge for me. Whenever I'm facing a presentation or anything where I need to be on my feet, and I do, I start getting that, that sick feeling in the pit of my stomach and maybe I start feeling a little nauseous but I turn that around and I use that and say this is my body preparing me for the task at hand and I take it as energy mm-hmm. and I do think and also thinking about it is that what I've gotten better at as I've gotten older is what I'm really trying to teach kids is that metacognitive piece of it to yes. be reflective to think about experience and say you know what that might not have been my best but I know what I can do better next time versus thinking oh that was awful and then kind of moving forward and doing the same thing that same awful thing I did previously. So um, really taking time to reflect on experiences has been helpful for me when taking on activities that I would find stressful. That I think is a really good transition into after the exam. Your kids may be stressed about that exam still, maybe ruminating over what they didn't know, maybe ready to just not think about that exam and not think about school again. So how do we help our kids after the exam? What do we do in the car ride when we pick them up from school? Starting with that mind map, having your child repeat, how did that go today? You know, how did you feel? What happened? What were some of your triggers? And then reflecting on how did you get through it? And as they repeat that exercise, they get stronger and they learn how to deal with those stressful moments. The last thing that they should do is ask, you know, what grade do you think you got on that? Or what grade, you know, what grade did you need on that? And if we can really 
remove some of the grade-based questions. I think that'll help our students enjoy the process. Um, maybe not enjoy it, but, you know, respect the process <laughs> more. Yeah. If you can actually talk with your child about the type of praise that they desire. When I'm proud of you, how can I let you know? What is it that your child wants to receive? And you may think they want to receive praise for getting an A or getting a 100, but what they really might want to hear is, we're just proud of you, period. For our listeners interested in some further reading about this or more information, what are some resources you can recommend? Yeah, one resource that we heavily rely on is um, a book called The Upside of Stress. We actually use it for our Jan term class, and it's by Kelly McGonigal, and she has some wonderful TED Talks. She also, in her book, has um, a lot of the research by Dr. Crum, who I referenced earlier from um, Stanford and she her research is to me profound. It's something I never um, I hadn't seen anything like it. I'd also like to add a book for students, An End to Anxiety by Gio Zarari. Um, it's a best selling book, and it's Gio's interpretation of his anxiety and what strategies he used in order to get over test anxiety and just anxiety in general. It's a great autobiographical narrative that students can really connect with. Those sound like great resources. Listeners will post a link to those books as well as to Dr. McGonigal's TED Talk at westminster.net slash podcast in our show notes. Kat, Sandria, thanks so much for being with us today. And listeners, thanks for joining us on our third episode. You can listen to all our episodes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>